Matt Gates mess with her kids and she fought back. Let's meet Rebecca Jones. She's running against Matt Gates in his district, doing pretty well. She's a Florida scientist and COVID-19 whistleblower. Had a fight with Ron DeSantis too. We like people who fight back. So Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No problem. All right, so let's take it one at a time. You're running against Matt Gates. What did for the folks who didn't see us covering it earlier? We thought you did a fantastic job. But what did Matt Gates do? Where his team took a picture of your son, and and how did you react? He basically had someone follow my son at a public event and waited until I left to go to the bathroom for a few minutes and had photographs of him taken by himself. And then published those on Facebook and on Twitter um, on September 11th because he had nothing better to do that day. And mocked him uh, for his low energy knowing that he's autistic. And uh, as you mentioned, I was not having that. I made sure that the public knew exactly what he did, that he's continuing his trend of stalking boys about my son's age, he's 12 years old. And despite thousands of outraged parents who have commented and told him that that's not right, he still has that post up to this day. Uh, So you mentioned stalking kids, Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, Matt Gates has a reputation and is actually under current active investigation for sex trafficking minors. And of course, there was the incident in which he falsely claimed that he adopted a teenage Latino boy who's a Cuban immigrant, even though his parents are alive and well off in Miami. So essentially, he just had a live-in underage boy live with him who started living with him about the same age that my son was. That's a really weird story that we never got to the bottom of. So next- it was very bizarre. So the kid's name is Nestor. So Nestor's parents live in Miami and they're wealthy. So why doesn't he live with them? Why is he living with Matt Gates? The question, isn't it? All right. Uh, so I don't know, man. Matt Gates is a troubled uh, fellow. Uh, so I saw some polls where you're doing pretty well against him. Now, that's supposed to be a very Republican district. So. Uh, What's the state of the race? So we're less than two down right now. Um, we had been pulling ahead, but of course, this is an area that's very difficult. And Matt Gates is claiming vindication because of some positive PR, saying that he's not innocent, but he might not be charged because his victim might have a grudge, which is absolutely not true. He's very much still under active investigation, and the Department of Justice has publicly stated they won't announce their decision to whether as to whether or not they're going to indict him until after the election. And it's close because partly this is a very conservative district. They don't like men who follow children, who stalk children, who bully 12 year old boys for their disabilities online. They want people who are moral, family driven people who fight for working class Americans like most of this district is. And he is none of those things, but I am. And I have been embraced as a viable alternative, especially with the recent disrespect that Matt Gates has been exhibiting for our servicemen and women and his comments about completely eliminating the VA, which a very large percent of our of our district here is dependent upon for the benefits that they earned by serving this country. So Rebecca, I want to get back to your fight with DeSantis as well in a minute, but let's let's stay on your race. So um, tell me about your platform. Uh, So if you win, what would you push for? 
So one of the things that's been problematic for Matt Gates in office is that he has essentially not been in his seat. We've lost three military missions in this area. In our economy, you know, the biggest drivers of our economy are our healthcare and our military infrastructure, and then of course, of course, coastal tourism. And we've lost a lot of that infrastructure, and with it, a lot of the families that build lives here. So keeping that in place and not losing any more is a big priority. Making sure that we have somebody fighting for the infrastructure funding bill, for the VA omnibus funding bill, to bring those resources down to this area, because we are going to have a Democratic Senate and a Democratic President, at least for the next two years. And we need to have someone in place who can work on those basic maintenance issues, like infrastructure that we have not had in this region for six years. And while there are existential problems facing our country right now, we are so behind on just upkeep that it would take me a whole term just to move through all of that. And some of my biggest plans are to create as much transparency, especially in campaign finance as possible, because the system is absolutely corrupt and Citizens United absolutely was a mistake and we need to rectify that immediately. So how do you see that corruption playing out in your own race? Because people talk about how Citizens United is wrong. But when I say you know, the corporate donations, for example, are, are bribes, the media flips out. No, those are our beloved corporations, how dare you, and our beloved politicians who are angels. So what's your experience in politics in regards to that? I haven't taken a penny from any corporation or any super PACs. The only organization that I've taken any money from was the Teamsters. And that was the maximum individual limit because I do not have a PAC. I actually stand by my convictions and that super PACs are wrong and immoral and do not take their money. I've raised three quarters of a million dollars and my average donation is $52. It's all grassroots fundraising because unlike some people, I live the morals and the principles that I say. I agree with Rebecca. I but yes, I, it is. It is very difficult to do it that way. I thought I heard that Matt Gates does not take corporate PAC money. Is that true? Uh, as his campaign company, no, but he does have a PAC. Oh, it's separate, technically, and I do not. Okay, interesting. All right. So uh, now let's talk about DeSantis. So uh, you uh, accuse him of. Basically, playing with the COVID numbers, doctoring the COVID numbers to make it seem like there was less deaths in Florida than there actually were. So, what was your role at the time, and what did you think the government of Florida was doing? So, I was the manager of COVID 19 data and surveillance for the first five and a half months of the COVID 19 pandemic in the state of Florida. I accidentally fell into that role because I was the only person there who had experience with disaster response, who had worked in crisis communication, who had a robust statistical background, worked in infectious disease, and knew how to build a website. And so I managed that project entirely on my own, almost for the entire duration that I was there. And when it came time to reopen the state, because despite what DeSantis says, he did shut it down for a month and a half. Um, I was asked to develop the reopening metrics. And when I presented them, not to DeSantis, but to Department of Health bureaucrats, um, they disagreed with what that data said in juxtaposition to the plan that they already made before looking at the data and tried to make the data match a plan that was an entire fabrication. It was not based on science or evidence. And in the following months, we had the first of two summer of deaths. And COVID cases and deaths were higher in Florida than any other state. And Florida also has 
the, the highest per capita deaths during the Delta wave as well after vaccines were available. At the time, I didn't even know what involvement, if any, any higher ups, including DeSantis had played in that. Um, maybe I was perhaps a little naive, but um, my whistleblower investigation ended two weeks ago. And the state sent me a letter determining that the state of Florida broke the law and asking me to do what they did. And in doing so created a specific threat to public health, safety and welfare. But since I was fired before I filed the complaint, it could not be considered retaliation to fire me. I was fired the day after I said I wanted to file a complaint. Interesting, okay, so the inspector general in Florida did call you a whistleblower, but it seems like they, like, are you saying that they said it did happen? What your charge, what you charged, actually did happen? Because the press seemed to report it as that it didn't happen. Um, yeah, that was a kind of a big mistake. There was a separate investigation that I did not interview with that was looking at three specific individuals and whether or not they were should be held culpable for things that were mentioned in my complaint. But it had, it was not my complaint, and that was back in April. Uh, however, an auditor general's report came out the month afterwards that found that the state undercounted COVID cases and deaths, deaths specifically in the thousands in the first six months of the pandemic alone. And the whistleblower case finished their investigation uh, with the agency I filed it with uh, Monday. I want to say it was two weeks ago, but honestly, as time goes by, it's been insane. It might have been three weeks ago. So. Yeah, unfortunately, there are three reports now that all verify everything that happened and some to a worse extent than honestly I had ever appreciated. So Rebecca, let me try to understand it better. How did they undercount the deaths? There were systemic errors in the data structure that didn't allow for reconciliation between databases, something that I complained about often. Um, they were removing people if they believed that cardiac arrest at that time uh, was not a symptom or cause of COVID, even though it is. So they kept changing the qualifications of what constituted a COVID death. At first, you had to be the first, you know, cause of death had to be COVID-19, even though COVID-19 could call respiratory failure or pneumonia and then be bumped down to number three. There was a lot of concern about uh, whether or not the medical examiners were allowed to release that data themselves to the public. Some were threatened uh, for suggesting that they do so. One was even fired. We had Department of Health employees who managed counties who were fired also for things as simple as encouraging vaccinations among their staff. And so this was something that was pervasive throughout the entire process. But of course, I can only speak for the time that I was there managing the data myself. And there were Unfortunately, a lot of different ways to manipulate data. Yeah, and so last thing on that, you you mentioned that Florida had more per capita deaths than almost anyone. Um, so, how much more people do you think died in Florida because DeSantis uh, minimized uh, COVID response? I think that's an academic paper that we probably won't see for another year. Okay, and guessing blindly is not something that scientists like myself do, but. The Auditor General found about 14% of deaths were not correctly reported or counted in the first six months. If you extrapolate that across the entire time period, assuming it didn't get worse, that's quite a few tens of thousands. Yeah, okay, super fair answer. And finally, Rebecca, what's your website? 
VoteJones2022.com. And like I said, we're less than two points away and we are ready to finally rid this country of Matt Gates. All right, we'll have the links down below on YouTube and Facebook. Rebecca Jones taking on Matt Gates uh, and earlier took on DeSantis uh, on, on the COVID numbers. Thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Are there political hitmen in a sense that do dirty tricks inside political campaigns? I know what you're thinking, of course. Well, but look, hold on, uh, how much do they exist? What do they do? What are those so-called dirty tricks? Why don't we find out? We're gonna to talk to Jesse Brown, he's a publisher and editor-in-chief of Canada Land. And their latest podcast is called Rat Effer. Confessions of a Dirty Tricks Operative. Wow. Jesse, uh, welcome to the show and tell us who in the world we're talking about. Hi, Jenk. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. We're talking about a guy named David Wallace. And David Wallace presented himself to me and my colleague, reporter Sheree Sutran, uh, at our news organization uh, over the internet, of course, and made himself known to us as a, he calls himself a fixer, calls himself a bagman. And as a lot of your viewers will know in politics, there is this term for manipulation and deceit in a political context, and that is rat effing. And, you know, in the podcast, we use the full vulgarity, but uh, he, he, he considers himself uh, a rat effer for hire. And I, I think you're absolutely right that everybody knows. That there are guys like this. There are political hitmen out there who destroy people's careers, use deceit and manipulation to do so. We're just never supposed to meet them. The whole point of people like this is they're supposed to be working in the shadows. So this was a very rare and enticing um, prospect for journalists. Here is somebody who says that that's what they do for a living and, and, and ha has been doing it, he claimed, for decades. And he's ready to come clean and he's ready to hand over his files and all of his communications with his clientele, uh, which were almost exclusively conservative politicians, political, political strategists, and the like. To which I also say, of course. Um, all right, so we're gonna get into how he did the dirty tricks. But first, I wanna play a trailer for the podcast, because that was really interesting. Let's, let's li uh, listen in. Rat is basically, um, Killing your own opposition. Rat is internal dirty laundry that makes its way into the media. And I take on rat jobs so I can get compromising material on politicians that I can use at a later date. That's rat. Klondike Papers, the latest conspiracy theory circulating on social media. Have you guys looked into the Klondike Papers at all? This is some crazy allegations among the conservative party. Those far right movements, they don't even realize who's pulling the strings. He's a con man, and I think he's a pretty good con man. David couldn't be trusted because he'd gone over to the other side and was giving stuff away to the people he's supposed to be hunting down. Some people tell you absolutely fantastical stories, and they turn out to be true. Okay, thousand questions, uh, Jesse. First, before we get to the Klondike papers, um, how did he do it? So let's say somebody hires him. They say, okay, I'm running against uh, Jim Jablowski over here. 
go destroy him. What does he do next? Well, he has a number of tricks up of his, up his sleeve. Um, you know, he 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 says that he likes to work with the truth. He likes when the people he's trying to destroy actually do have real secrets, real dirty laundry. Um, but he, you know, he kind of takes it on the word of the enemies of, of his targets that the person has dirty dirty laundry to hide. It's not like he does the work of verifying that this person actually has uh, is corrupted. So I'll be a bit more specific. Uh, one story that we uh, vetted and verified for our podcast is this claim he makes that he was involved in a plot to take down the mayor of Calgary. Uh, Calgary, Alberta, this is a ridiculously wealthy oil town from the oil sands in Alberta. It's sort of like you know Canada's Texas, it's the wild west of Canada, uh, staunchly conservative, but they had this very progressive mayor. Now he Nenshi is actually the first Muslim mayor of any major North American city. And Nenshi had made enemies of housing developers because he wanted to curb the unfettered sprawl of Calgary. And so what David Wallace told us is that a group of Nenshi's enemies hired him and told him that Nenshi was corrupt. That Nenshi was somebody who could be enticed into a plot. So he set up what he called a big store con. He rolled into Calgary and presented himself to city councilors and to the mayor saying that he represented $40 billion of Russian investment money, clean money, nothing to worry about here, clean money. And um, he represents investors who wish to invest in Calgary. The plan was if he could get these city councilors and the mayor on the hook taking this money and signing uh, intention to have a bilateral trade agreement with Russia, uh, that's when they would be secretly videotaped. It would be revealed that this money was sanctioned Russian money, dirty money. Uh, and, and this would be used uh, and released to, to the public, perhaps through a reporter like myself, uh, as a way of, of taking down the democratically elected mayor of Calgary. And this was a wild tale. Uh, and you know, David Wallace, by way of introduction, told us, it's nice to meet you. I deceive reporters for a living, and now I want to tell you some stories. So of course, we had to just vigorously check everything he told us. We were able to confirm that this is true, and we spoke to a city councilor who he tried to trick in this scheme. And this was a scheme that did not work because, uh, and you know, here I'll spoil some material from our first episode, but uh, the mayor of Calgary was not corruptible. Um, it's just stuff that you always kind of suspect happens, but I can't think of any other occasion where we'd actually hear these stories and, and actually get them confirmed. That is amazing. So I'm also curious about the part where they then go to reporters and get it out in the public. Because I vote, because there's as bad as David Wallace and like these dirty tricks, etc., and, and traps, etc. But there's also just normal oppo research that almost all politicians do. And then, in my opinion, especially in America, they plant that with reporters, and reporters barely check to see if it's true. And then they just run it, and they wind up being. In my opinion, co-conspirators to these dirty tricks. So, how does he get the reporters to cover his dirty tricks? 
Well, I mean, you point out a really big problem. And, and here in Canada, we had another case, another one in, with which David Wallace was involved, where Patrick Brown was a gentleman who was the basically a shoe in to be the next premier of Ontario. Now, that's the second highest political office in Canada, second only to the prime minister. And he, he was just, it was sort of a done deal. And he went down like instantaneously over a, a series of Me Too type allegations. Now, this is an interesting scenario where um, I don't think that I want to challenge the veracity of the allegations, but it was also very clear that whoever was pulling the strings and shopping these allegations and, and, and bringing the story to reporters, there was obviously some political strategy and machinations at work here. You know, So it's hard from the point of view of a reporter, when somebody brings you information about a political figure and you can go and independently verify that it's true, well, you've got a scoop that nobody else has. And you know, you could even argue that you've got a duty to report that. At the same time, the person who brought it to you, it's not always somebody of virtue true who thinks that the public has a right to know about, you know, often you're being shopped or fed information or leaked information from people who are in the game. And I think that puts reporters in a very difficult position. I I don't know that I would be comfortable withholding that information, but I think I share your concern about being used as a tool. It's almost like you want to tell the public what you learned, but also how you learned it and who you got it from. But often those are conditions that reporters agree to when they're receiving information that they're not going to tell. Yeah, so funny enough, I was actually just in Calgary. But and so, and but from an outsider's perspective, being an American, Canada seems compared to us relatively clean or maybe squeaky clean, right? But here in America, I don't see any reporters doing double checking anything. I mean, they get handed a so-called leak, they're printing it, they don't give a damn. And 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 in fact, I think they are the establishment. They love smearing, especially outsiders. And so, anyways, that that's just they can't get it out without going through reporters. So the reporters have to work with them in order for these dirty tricks to work. And now, as you say, there's an obligation if it's true, right? And that's why it's incumbent upon reporters to to do more due diligence, as you guys did. So, uh, when you did that in this particular case, uh, why did David Wallace come uh, come forward? Uh, why didn't he just keep doing these dirty tricks? Well, that, that kind of becomes the million dollar question of our show because there's what he claims, and and you know I think we have to be skeptical. And his story was that you know he'd been doing this kind of work for for almost three decades. He'd been doing it not just in Canada for politicians and conservatives in Canada. He'd been working for oligarchs in Russia. He you know claims that for many years his base of operations was this notorious bar in Moscow called the Hungry Duck. He has wild stories about the the jobs he would do for for wealthy businessmen, and and often it was reporters who he was actually hired to stop. Reporters who were reporting the truth about business people, and he would find ways to get them arrested. Just incredible stories. He claims he worked with the FBI. Again, you know, there was a scheme in New York State. It goes on and on. He's just pouring this stuff out, and we keep asking, why? Why are you telling us this? You're not just implicating all of these people who are going to be pretty upset with you, but you're implicating yourself. And the reason he gave us is really where this story just opened up into a whole maze of new plot twists. What what he told us was that he had been hired through his conservative connections in Alberta, in Calgary. He had been connected to a fundamentalist Christian sect with extensive business interests and extensive connections to politicians. And this Christian sect 
they are called the Plymouth Brethren. They are functional in, in uh, the UK and Australia. You can read all kinds of investigations and news stories about the Plymouth Brethren. They do have lots of connections to government. They have received millions and millions of dollars in controversial uh, COVID uh, contracts. And they do have a, a lot of political influence in circles. And uh, what David Wallace told us is that they had hired him to track down a former member of their group who had left this religious group and was basically turned into a whistleblower. And that when he succeeded in finding this guy, Wallace became very suspicious about what was gonna be done with this guy. And what he claims is he had essentially a crisis of conscience that he got to the crossroads and was increasingly suspicious that this was not your typical dirty tricks job, that this might be moving into darker territory. And he felt he might be personally implicated, he might be getting set up for liability. And he also claims that he was very concerned about what was gonna happen to this ex member of this fundamentalist Christian group. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our work in the series is investigating those claims and saying, is, is, it, is it accurate that David Wallace finally found his conscience or are there other motivations driving him? Okay, and real quick, uh, Klondike Papers, what are they? Well, the Klondike Papers, really, we wouldn't have pursued this or been able to confirm any of this without them. These are David Wallace's files. These are 6,400 pages of emails and text messages and metadata. And it's just astonishing to go through this and to see that the types of people he was communicating with. He was communicating with some fairly high level political figures, not just in Canada, but around the world. And it's often very difficult to get the context, what he's talking about. There's a lot of uses of aliases, but really it was this treasure trove of tips. And our job was to, first of all, is this doctored? Are these documents fraudulent? Can we verify that they're real? And then if they are real, what are the stories that they tell? Now, we were doing our work, which is slow, methodical work of journalism, picking specific stories that spans years and trying to report them out and getting people to verify them. Meanwhile, there was rumor and word of these Klondike papers spilled onto the internet. And a hashtag, Klondike papers, hit millions of people in Canada very quickly. A lot of people were commenting on the Klondike papers who had never seen them or read them. And I think it's safe to say that it became something of a conspiracy theory. And people were jumping to a lot of conclusions and making the darkest inferences and conclusions from these papers without really knowing whether they're true or not. All right, fine, you win, we gotta watch it or listen to it. It's a super interesting story. The podcasting network is Canada Land. That's where you can find it. You can find it, of course, anywhere where there's podcasts. And this particular podcast is called Rad Effer, the actual thing. Uh, Confessions of a Dirty Tricks Operative. All right, Jesse Brown, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. That was fun talking with you. Thank you.